0: We've been in this series in Matthew, and it is my custom when we come to a Sunday, we come to a new text, we just forge ahead, right? Very rarely do I look back. I try not to overly review what was said in the past, but this week something happened, y'all. I just I can't help it. Last week I preached on the text, Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man founds it, when a man found it, he hid it again and then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Preached the application. It's great cost. It's great joy. You got to go all in. You got it. Then on Tuesday, multiple people sent me this. Tom, did you see this? Pastor Tom, this is out of Louisville, Kentucky. News story, WDRB reports and nationwide it's been picked up. Kentucky man uncovers buried treasure on his farm. <laughs> Last month, the man found more than 700 rare gold coins from the Civil War era in a field not being identified. He wants to remain anonymous, probably wise, right? The collection is being called the Great Kentucky Horde. And it's got coins from 1840 to 1863. Experts say, get this, People used to bury their money during the Civil War. <laughs> and they are worth, get this, around $2 million. Now, uh, they're for sale, by the way, government.com if you want to buy them. No record of whether he sold everything he had to buy that field. But I think we can assume he had great joy. Now, what are the odds of that? The... Uh, the, the parables of which that was one, Jesus concludes in Matthew 13. That actually concludes a block of teaching. Now, we're going to turn to a very famous passage in Matthew 14. Let me set the context. We're going to start in verse 22. But let me set the context. Herod has had his wicked, evil feast. At that drunken feast, you remember, he makes a great boast. And it ends up with John the Baptist's head on a platter. So John the Baptist has been murdered. And Jesus is... Uh, grieving the loss of this prophet. And uh, uh, then after that, he does this incredible miracle. Notice the two feasts at Herod's feast. It's full of unrighteousness and wickedness. It ends in death. At Jesus' feast, he does a different kind of feast. He does a feeding of the 5,000. And his feast ends in life-giving joy and fish and bread for uh, 5,000 men. No telling how many people. And then immediately after this, we come now to a famous, famous miracle. Famous miracle. Let, let's just read the miracle in its entirety. And uh, you, you've doubtless heard about this, even if you don't know the Bible. And if you grew up in church, you've heard this since you were a child. Matthew fourteen twenty two. You know this story. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, the crowds there being the feeding of the five thousand masses, he went up to the mountain. He went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. (sighs) Christians have often succumbed to the temptation, and I'm trying to resist, to turn this story into just an allegory. And you can see what, right? I mean, the sermon writes itself. There is so much, it would be so easy just to jump straight into application. The disciples are in a storm and Jesus came to them in their storm. When you're in a storm, Jesus comes to you. I mean, it it's writes itself. Right? So the temptation here is just to make this a, uh, an allegory. And it is an inspiring story, but here's what we need to back up and do. There, there is much application, and we will get to that. This passage has a lot to say to us, right? But before this passage is about us, it is about Jesus. What do I mean by that? In the Gospels, right, in the Bible, remember, before it's a story about us, it's really, it's a story about God. What, what is this saying about Jesus? In fact, there's even a problem. Sometimes when, when we... Yes, it's an inspiring story, but that right there actually leads to a problem. You know, sometimes um, even the way we use that word story when we talk about what happened in the gospel can be problematic. Did you ever think about this? If you mean story as in news story, then it's fine, right? Like, like okay, so, so hey, did you see that story on the news? You're, you're saying that's a fact. If, however, you have to be careful, often we use story to mean once upon a time fairy tale. So if you say this is a Bible story, you have to be careful that your mind doesn't go to fairy tale. So what this is, is a historical event that shocked even the eyewitnesses, right? This is a historical record. This is a miracle. Jesus is revealing something about himself in this miracle, so we don't want to just say, well, this is a Bible story. What can, we, what can we apply from this? What can we get from this? Of course, there's much to apply. But we need to hang out here. Why this miracle? At the risk of sounding uh, irreverent, like, did you ever wonder, what, what's, what's the point of this miracle? I, if... if you heal the sick people, you see the point. The sick people get healed. You raise the dead, I mean, you, you see the point. That, that dead little girl comes back to life. You feed the 5,000, you see the point. Everybody gets a sandwich. Like you, right? I mean, there's some benefit. What, what's the benefit of walking on the water? Well, let's, where are we in, Matthew? to understand that question, you've got to ask, where are we in Matthew, where are we in the whole Bible, where are we in Matthew? Let's list the miracles so far. He's healed the sick, he cleaned a leper, leopard, a leopard. he cured a Roman centurion's servant, he cooled a fever, he stilled the wind, he exercised demons, he restored a paralytic, he stopped a desperate woman's 12-year discharge of blood, he raised a little girl from the dead, he opened the eyes of the blind, he made the mute speak, he healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, he took five loaves and two fishes and fed the 5,000. So, In all of these things, and then he told us parables in Matthew 13. So in all these things, it tells us about the kingdom of heaven. If you look at the parables and you look at all those miracles, apparently we know the kingdom of heaven is, well, lots of things. Apparently the kingdom of heaven is available to rich and poor, religious and non-religious, Jew and Gentile, male and female, adult and little kid. The kingdom's for all who recognize their spiritual sickness and come to Christ in faith for rest and satisfaction and forgiveness of sin. So slowly, I think the disciples are starting to realize who Jesus is. Slowly. Stuff like the blind receiving their sight. The Old Testament said that the only time that will happen is when the anointed king comes. And so it's starting to dawn on them. I think he's Messiah. Like they're slowly starting to get it. He's Messiah. And then the stuff he's saying about forgiveness of sins, it's starting to dawn on him. He's not just Messiah, but he's also this sort of Messiah Savior. Almost like the sacrificial lamb of Isaiah 53. There's a Savior aspect. So they've got Messiah. They've got Savior. But Matthew told us another name. Matthew told us early in chapter 1 he was going to be called Emmanuel. That's, That's a little different than Messiah. Savior, that means also he's God with us. He's God in the flesh. And this is the point of this particular miracle. The walking on the water shows us first and foremost that Jesus is not doing some neat parlor trick. This is revelation of who he is. He is showing to the disciples he's not just Messiah. He's not just Savior. He's God. He's God in human flesh. He does it in what he does and what he says and what he does. Go back to verse 25. Simply put, he walks on the sea. He walks on the water. Now, if you, if you look at verse 25, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to him, and he walking on the sea. You can see, I, I can show you in an ancient scripture, this is something only God can do. If you go back to what some people think was the earliest, but the book of Job, way back in the book of Job chapter 9, look at this verse. Job's talking about all the things that God alone can do, and when he gets to verse 8, he says, he alone stretches out the heaven and treads on the waves of the sea. In other words, walking on the water is something that only God can do. So when Jesus walks on the water Jesus y'all is doing something that only God can do right so he's showing Jesus is God and he not only does something only God can do he then says something only God would say if you look at verse 27 immediately when, when they're afraid remember they shout out it's a ghost what does he say to them take heart it is I do not be afraid in English it uh, uh, sort of disguises it a little bit, but uh, that it is I is in the dead center of this text. Saying take heart, it is I. I mean, when I say it's in the dead center, I'm not like uh, uh, just sort of approximating. There's 91 Greek words before this uh, in the passage and there's 91 Greek words after this. At the dead center is this. Dead center is this revelation. It is I is two words in Greek. And the words are, if you're curious, the words are ego eimi, right? Ego eimi, It is I, or I am I. Or you could just translate it, I am. Now, you may know where I'm going with this. If you recall when Moses, way back in Exodus 3, asks God, what's your name? And God gives him his name. It becomes blasphemy for anyone else to even speak this name. He tells him, you remember in Hebrew, Yahweh. I am who I am, or I am I. Yahweh, the name of God, the unspeakable, right? And so when Jesus shows up doing what only God can do, I think it's interesting, when he introduces himself, do you know how to say Yahweh in Greek? Do you know how to say I am in Greek? Ego, Aime. So you got Jesus doing what only God can do on the waters, and when he introduces himself, he says, I am. My point is, Jesus does what only God can do, and he uses the name that only God can use. And look what the disciples do in verse 33. They worshiped him. Truly you are the Son of God. Now, when people bow down and worship you, if people who say Jesus never claimed to be God, Jesus was just a good teacher. Jesus was a prophet. If he was a prophet and people bowed down at his feet and worship, if he was just a prophet, he would have stopped them, right? Jesus would have been like, What are you doing? This is blasphemy. Get up, get up, and said Jesus is like, Yep. They bowed out in worship. He didn't rip his garments and go, this is blasphemy. He allowed himself to be worshipped. So, so, so this, is, this is what we got to get. But before we get to the application, yes, there's lots of application here. Yes, you're going to walk away going, man, that, I can really apply that to my life. But first, before any of this application is worth anything, you got to see what he's revealing about himself. And it's this. Jesus walks where only God can walk. He uses the name That only God would use, and he demands the worship that only God can demand. It may be, if you've grown up in church, you've grown up your whole life with good doctrine and good theology, it may be one of those things, you don't know what you got. You don't know how good you got it. To say Jesus is God. To say Jesus is a prophet puts you in line with the rest of the world. No problem. To to say that Jesus is a good teacher, that puts you in line with the rest of the world. When you say Jesus is God, that's what will get you killed in parts of the world. Do, do Do you know how inflammatory that sentence is? To say Jesus is God. And we stand on that truth. And part of the reason we stand on that truth is because of what happened in the historical fact, event, miracle of Matthew 14. That's why he's worthy of worship. Well, in our time remaining, if we've got that straight in our heads, that's, who, that, that's what this miracle is about. It reveals about Jesus. Then that puts us in a good place to now apply the text. Because that's how the Bible works. The imperatives flow out of the indicatives in other words the imperatives what we're supposed to do the commands always flow out of who God is it's never the other way around it's never do a bunch of good things and then maybe you get to discover the character of God do a bunch of good things and then maybe you get saved no no no, no. No. because of what God has done because of who Christ is then that leads us that we're going to live in a certain way And so for those of you who are note takers, I gave you three you could write down. Super practical applications, and here's the first. God uses the storm for transportation. God uses the storm for transportation. And I thought long and hard about how to word this first point because I was worried with all my talk about Jesus proving that he is God, and we're getting into the Greek language. I thought, what if I get halfway through my message, I get to the application, and everyone's asleep. So I thought about wording this one with a rhyme, you know, to keep everybody. And I was going to call this point, what is consternation to you is transportation to God. What's consternation to you is transportation to God. But then I thought, well, what if people don't know what consternation is? And they think that's the thing, you need more fiber, and then I'll be off. In and I said, no, that's something different. So I said, all right. So consternation is dismay, disquiet, alarm, anxiety, worry, fear, dread, dread, trepidation, bewilderment, or concern. Now does anybody, am I talking to anybody, who from time to time is facing what we might call a storm, a consternation of disquiet, alarm, dismay, anxiety, worry, dread, trepidation, bewilderment, or concern? Tell me you're facing it right now. And you've got a real issue. Because you're not being disobedient. You're not out of the will of God. Oh, I don't mean you're perfect. You've got sin. You, you, you're, you're not perfect, but you're saying, I don't get it, Lord. I don't get it. Why am I facing anxiety, dread, bewilderment, dismay? Why, why do I have the darkness? I'm your child. I'm standing on your promises. So why is it if, 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 I'm, if I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, why is it I'm facing this storm? Go back and look carefully at verse 22. The disciples had the same problem. Look, who who made the storm? Who made them get in the boat? (laughs) Look at this. They were not being disobedient to God. They were, in fact, following the command of Jesus. Everybody hear me? Being in a storm doesn't mean, oh, you're outside the will of God, and God's sending you this big storm. No, you can be, they're literally following the command of Jesus. Immediately, he made the disciples. That word is compelled. It is an unusually forceful verb. It's saying, no, 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 you you have to get in. I think Jesus realized, remember in John 6, he tells us after the feeding of the 5,000, they were going to make Jesus king. And Jesus knew that his disciples, they would like that kind of talk. See, they'd get wrapped up in that. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you guys are, there's no king making happening today. So he immediately makes them, he separates them from the crowd. He makes them do it. My point is simply this. The disciples feel stuck, and Jesus did it on purpose. Look at verse 23. After he dismissed them, he goes up to pray. Evening, they're alone, so the camera's on Jesus. Then in verse 24, the camera shifts to the disciples. But the boat, by this time, was a long way. Another translation says mini stadia. A stadion was about 600 feet. So let's say they're three miles out. Look, look, look. The whole distance across the lake is only four to five miles. It should have taken them no time. And we get a time stamp. The next verse tells us it was the fourth watch of the night. The Romans divided the night into 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., and they cut it up into four watches. 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., first watch. 9 to midnight, second watch. Midnight to 3, third watch. 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., fourth watch. Do the math here. (laughs) They've rowed for six hard hours, and they've only made it three miles. Should have taken them an hour or two. Six hours. This is to say the wind was against them. <laughs> like the old King James, they were much buffeted by wind and wave. Yeah, I'd say so. The, the, the wind was very much against them. This is quite a storm. Why am I making a big deal about this storm? Everybody hear me. They feel stuck, and Jesus did it on purpose. Somebody in here needs to hear this. What is confounding to you, what feels like an obstacle to you, have you considered God is using? They were not outside God's will when the storm came. They were following the Lord's command, and they had to be wondering why. Don't you think they had to be thinking, wouldn't this be a lot easier? with? Haven't you ever thought, wouldn't this be a lot easier if God would take it away? Doesn't God know I'm stuck? I, I cannot seem to get where I want to be. But here's the thing. Sometimes God uses the storm as transportation, not to take you where you want to be, but to take you where he wants you to be. See? He's got a destination that's different. The disciples think the destination is the other end of the lake. Jesus' real destination is for them to see him revealed as God. Worship is his destination. And sometimes the storm... He'll eventually get them to their place, but sometimes a storm, sometimes a storm. It's like you can't get where you need to get without the storm. Sometimes God uses storms as transportation. If we asked for a show of hands, if we asked for a testimony, I know that some of you would not be where you are in your life right now without your storm. It's the storm that God used. I've talked to so many people. You wouldn't have the praise on your lips that you bring, your praise this morning, you wouldn't have it without your storm. I've talked to so many people. They love God in the calm times. They've always known God. But when crisis hits, they tell me, as I'm, I'm talking to them, they say, Pastor, all that stuff I've known, all these, all, all these Bible stories hmm, that I've read, all this stuff, I tell you, since I've gone through this, that stuff gets real. That's the way they put that. This stuff gets real. I know exactly what they mean by that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I praise him in the calm times. But when I knew him as God of the emergency room, when I knew him as God in that funeral parlor with me. When everybody had left and I was left alone figuring out the new normal with my grief, that was a storm. And I discovered new layers and richness of the grace and mercy of God when I was filled with anxiety and fear and the storm of a cancer, the storm of a job loss, the storm of the divorce, the storm of the darkest night. And I met him there. At first I thought it was a ghost but I realized it was the living Lord Jesus. He was using a storm. I love Pastor Terry Anderson. He says oh your worship is different when you Come and your worship is wet from the storm. Wet worship. I love that. Come into church ready to praise him, ready to give him all glory, ready to give him thanks. Why? Because your worship is still wet from the storm that you've been walking through. And you found him good. You found him faithful. Well, sometimes you can't get where you need to go unless you go through the storm. So for anyone saying this storm is keeping me from where I want to go, maybe. But it might be taking you exactly where God wants you to go. So God uses the storm for transportation. That's the first application. The second application has to do with Peter. And I'll give it to you after I read these verses. And in the fourth watch of the night, verse 25. Fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to him walking on the sea. But when his disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. They cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord... now." To be fair to Peter, this if it is you, the if is more like translated um, since. So it's not like, you know, if it's you, this is a test or something like that. It's, well, since it's really you, you know, uh, command me. So he says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, having said my caveat about that verse, you still don't know what to do with Peter, do you? It's been 2,000 years, and everybody from Bible scholars to little kids have been puzzled in terms of what to do with Peter. Like, if you teach little children this Bible historical event, see, I didn't call it story. If you teach little children this, it is true. There's two, there's two types of kids, you know. I mean, somebody hears this, and they go, cool. I want to jump off. The others are going, I'm not sure that's wise. Well, the little kids are onto something um for some people you know bible scholars are actually divided on this for some people peter's a hero one of my favorite one of the best book titles ever has to go to john ortberg he, ran, he read uh, uh, wrote a book late 90s early 2000s and peter is the hero and the title of the book is if you want to walk on water you got to get out of the boat <laughs> pretty good title and John Ortberg celebrates him. There are others who say Peter had no business. It was human pride that made him try to do what only God did. There was a little Bible scholar. Oh, you might have heard of him, Switzerland. Uh, his name is John Calvin. <laughs> He's one of them. So which is it? And I tell you, pastors now, whoo, pastors have a field day with Peter. Oh, man, pastors pick on Peter. Pastors pick on Peter all day. <laughs> I mean, oh, look at his lack of faith. Look at Peter, always with his brain in neutral and his mouth in drive. And Peter wanting to come out on the water. Well, you know who never gets preached on? You know who I've never once heard a sermon on? The people in the boat. And that leads to my second point. Nobody ever criticizes the boat people. (laughs) I want us to think deeply on that this morning. And I want, that, I want to take that as an application, and I want it to be a great encouragement because a lot of you step out on faith, and it would be a lot easier just to, just to... Look, nobody ever criticizes the boat people. So if you just quit trying, and you just quit trying stuff, you'll stop getting in trouble. Whatever you make of Peter in this scene, can't you imagine the people in the boat? Now, remember Peter, you remember Peter's name, that, that Jesus gave him a nickname. You remember that, right? You can hear him yelling, Petrus, no! Petrus, no! Andrew, what's he doing? Andrew's like, he's been this way since we were kids. Petrus, no, do not, what are you doing? Petrus? your name literally means rock! Because they sink. It was one of those, I'm like, it's gonna be funny to you, it's not gonna be funny to anybody else. Gonna, don't say it. My point is, if you want to avoid criticism, y'all, Don't do anything, don't risk anything. Stop stepping out in work and you'll never get into any trouble. Stop trying to make something better and you'll never get into, just just sort of quiet quit. Just hang back in the boat. If you never share your faith with anybody, you will never once be rejected. If you never go on a mission trip, you'll never have lost luggage. You see what I'm saying? Don't ever put your heart out there and love in vulnerability because that's what love takes. Don't ever risk loving people. You've been burned too many times. So let your heart grow hard. Let your heart grow cynical. Close it up in the casket of selfishness because otherwise you'll be hurt. But in that coffin of selfishness, it will never be hurt again. C.S. Lewis in the Four Love says the only place outside of heaven that's truly safe from any of the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. It'll change. It'll harden, but it won't be hurt again. I know Peter is, I hope you see my point. Peter is flawed. Boy, his faith is easy to criticize. In fact, when I, when I say, hey, I'm gonna preach on Jesus walking on the water, Matthew's the only one who adds the detail about Peter walking on the water. I don't know why Peter didn't tell Mark to add that detail. Maybe Peter was being modest. I don't know. It's also interesting, Matthew didn't say that the party in Matthew 10 was at his own house, or Matthew 9. Um, I wonder if these guys are like being modest as they write. The, and it, the point is, um, it's easy to sit back in the boat and criticize Peter's faith, but I don't, I, come on, isn't everybody in here? Don't you find yourself cheering more for Peter than the boat people? I do. This is why I get awfully defensive. Uh, how do I say it? I do get defensive. I shouldn't, probably. But I, I, let me say it this way. I put very little stock when someone says, yeah, I don't, I don't go to that church. I don't come to church. I don't, I don't have anything to do with that. Why not? That church, I had full of hypocrites. People are hypocrites and they go to church. And I always want to pull them close. Gently, gently close. And say, that's so easy to say from the safety of the boat, isn't it? You don't find out how hard it is to live a life of faith when you've just surrendered. And you're not even trying. You don't find out the strength of the wind when you're going along the same current. It's only when you turn and face and go against the current and go against the wind it is so easy for anyone trying to do anything putting out any content or good or beauty in the world or for a christian trying to live by faith it is so easy to sit back and hammer it and we've made it even easier with a thing called social media which is just boat people lobbing grenades from the boat (laughs) peter's already sinking they're just throwing rocks of criticism perhaps you've heard this famous speech from teddy roosevelt the man in the arena speech It's famous. If not, you can google it. Many, many people have quoted this. I put the quote in its entirety up here. It's lengthy, but I thought worth reading. Now would be a good time. He writes, it is not the critic who counts. Imagine Roosevelt trying all these things and everybody criticizing. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done him better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again because there's no effort without error and shortcoming, but who actually does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. I think that quote could have been about Peter and the boat people, I really do. So to everyone who's tried to follow Jesus and failed, keep the faith, nobody ever criticizes the boat people. Finally, he did fail. I'll give you the third point after we look at the passage one last time, let's look carefully at the passage. He did fail, and we know why. Verse 28, Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, come, so there's the word, come. Whatever Jesus thought of it, he says, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So Jesus' command is very simple, come. Peter, how, how far you reckon he made it? Because it had to have been pretty good ways because he ends up next to Jesus. It says he came to Jesus and immediately when he says, Lord, save me, Jesus is able to reach out his hand, save him. So apparently he made it a pretty good ways. But why did he sink? Why did he sink? Come on, class, you know this. You've known this since you were a little kid. You're taught because he took his eyes off Jesus. That, that's, that's true. That, that's a totally acceptable answer. But technically, it's not what the text says. If you go back and look, the text says... Uh, I believe it's in verse 30. Uh, The text says, When he saw the wind. There's irony here. uh, Because technically, one cannot, in fact, see the wind. I know, I, know what, I, know, I know what they mean. What he means is he sees the effects of the wind, and he feels the, sp- here I am, a boat person, right, criticizing Peter, but I know he means he saw the spray of the sea, he heard the snapping of the sail on the boat, he sees the waves, he knows he's going under. I, I just want to point out, I think it's ironic, what he could see with his own eyes, Jesus, he actually doubted what he could see, Jesus, <laughs> because of what he could not see, the wind, So many people accuse Christians of blind faith, but in this case, the obvious faith was Jesus. The blind thing to do would be to trust the thing you can't see that's not Jesus. Let me say this again, and let me say it in the words of a brilliant commentator, a Matthew expert, R.T. France. He says it this way, Peter's loss of faith consists in allowing the material facts, a.k.a. the wind, to weigh more heavily than the power of Jesus I'll say it again and then I'll like put it in Tom words. (laughs) Peter's loss of faith consists in allowing the material facts, the wind, to weigh more heavily than the power of Jesus. Here's how I would put it. Uh, Peter put more faith in the power of the wind than the power of the word. He put more faith in the power of the wind than the power of the word. What was Jesus' word? Come. And if he brings you to it, he'll bring you through it. You can trust his word. He put more faith, and that's the third and final application. You ready? Fear, people say, oh, fear's a lack of faith. No, no, no. Don't, no, no, no. Fear's not a lack of faith. You have faith. Fear's just faith in the wrong power. Fear is faith in the wrong what if. Fear is just faith in the wrong place. He put all his faith in the power of the wind. I believe, that's what faith is. I believe, I trust that the wind has the great power to take me under, rather than I trust Jesus has the great power to save That's all. Fear is faith in the wrong power. I I really think, uh, I may have stumbled onto something here that may need further exploration, another sermon, another day, but we think fear is the absence of faith, but I think we always have faith. We're putting our faith right now in something or someone. The question is not, do you have faith? The question is, in whom or what is your faith placed? Is your faith in Jesus, the word of Jesus, or the wind of your storm? So when you have anxiety, there's all these what ifs. What if this? What if you lose everything? What if that happens? What if? And you begin to give power to them as you put your faith in those what ifs. Well, fear is just faith in the wrong what ifs. Because what if Jesus comes through? What if you have a miracle? What if everything you're going through is just more ammunition for your testimony and praise to God? Why not just put your faith in a different what if? That's what fear is. Well, fear Faith in the wrong power. The musicians are going to come and help us as we close. I hope these application will be of great encouragement to you. Jesus is the mighty God. He was with the disciples, and he is with us. Now, I tried to warn that the story is much more than an allegory, and it is. But, you know, there is an element of allegory here that I couldn't help but point out. Did you consider in this story how it is an allegory of what Jesus does with all his disciples? Where's Jesus when the story starts? Way up high on the mountaintop, communing with his heavenly father. Wouldn't that have been a sweet conversation? Proud of you, son. I know, dad. It's getting hard out here. I know, son. Especially Peter, Lord. I I know, I know. Hmm? Communing. My heart's broken, dad. Dad. I know. There wasn't one like John the Baptist. I I know. I know. You miss him already. You see him? I see him. Out there on that boat. Yeah. Well, that storm's hard. Yeah, I, I made it. Yeah. Can we go now? Yeah. Now's the time. So Jesus, communing with God the Father, leaves the high and holy mountain, comes down to where the disciples are in the storm. Come on, is this not an allegory? To some degree, can we not draw a parallel? To the triune God, forever in perfect fellowship, Jesus comes and is born in a manger in the storm of Bethlehem, into a teenage pregnancy, into the storm of that whole world. Hmm? And when he comes to those disciples, just like he says he called them, oh, and he invited them. And just like Jesus, when he shows up at the disciples' boat, he assures them of who he is. He does all these signs and wonders. He lets them know, I'm God. And then he says, come. huh? And when they came, and when they did, Lord, save me immediately. Aren't you glad, by the way, Jesus saves before he scolds? Aren't you glad he didn't lecture Peter on his way down? He does the saving then he gives the lesson but aren't you glad he reaches out and he says oh you of little faith why did you doubt now he could have saved with a word I think it's extra tender I mean the guy walks on water he could have said rise or whatever but he reaches out his hand extra tenderness there and that to me is the image I think that, that, that's the gospel That's boy it, it, it sure would be a shame to walk out of here and go okay let me see if I can remember the three application points the first one was consternation Never gonna forget that my whole life. Second one was something about Teddy Roosevelt, uh, and the third one was um, I lost the third one. But anyway, it's something I'm supposed to do. It's, I'm supposed to have more faith. Probably not take my eyes off Jesus or something. At best, you might remember two out of the three of these. They might give you some encouragement. I hope so. But that's not the heartbeat of the gospel. If I only had one sentence and I had to preach this whole text in one sentence, somebody would be like, that'd be great. Can you start doing that on Sundays? If I had one sentence, and I had to preach the whole thing in one sentence. You hear this sermon preached over and over. Peter took his eyes off Jesus. But the point of this passage is that Jesus never took his eyes off Peter, he never took his eyes off you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's such mercy. Such grace. Oh God, forgive us when we sit comfortably in the boat and throw criticisms at those who are stepping out on faith. God, grant to us faith. Grant to us, Lord, a Oh, a, a, a patience in the midst of storms, knowing you may be taking us where uh, we, we may not have necessarily chosen to go. God, grant to us a deeper revelation that you're not just Messiah and Savior. You're not just anointed king. You're not just the one who's strong to save, but you're also the mighty God in human flesh. Grant us fresh uh, belief there. Oh, but God, grant to us whatever applications we remember or forget to remember, Uh, whether we feel like we're standing strong or sinking low, uh, God grant to us a deeper, richer understanding of the good news of the gospel that you have never for a moment taken your eyes off us and you are still strong to save those who feel so weak in faith. Grant that to our people. Grant that to me. Grant that to our family. Grant that this community. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet for the invitation?